The Orient, the Far East, the Middle Kingdom. For centuries, China has been a bit of a mystery to the Western world. It's a country that has grown in international influence recently, but even details like the president's background remain sparse. And a new podcast seeks to pierce that veil, helping Canadians understand a country on the other side of the Pacific. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. It all started with a look at Russia and Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because when we released uh, the the first season in this this series now, Russia Rising, it was about two and a half years ago. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of interest in it, which was great. That's Jeff Semple, Global News senior correspondent and host of China Rising. But there was also some discussion at that time uh, from myself and my colleagues, you know, about what we might want to do next. And someone suggested at that time that, Perhaps we should explore China uh, in a subsequent series. Um, and, you know, it seems obvious given, you know, how important China is. But at the same time, one of our colleagues and producers at Global News also noted that, you know, China didn't often make the news back then, uh, you know, for the wrong reasons like Russia so often did. Uh, and it's incredible to, to recall that conversation now because what a difference two years can make, right? I mean, con China is now constantly dominating the headlines and accused of, you know, behaving badly, whether it's, you know, taking, you know, hostage diplomacy and the, the arrest of the two Michaels, of course, their detainment since December 2018. Uh, China's accused of um, sowing disinformation around the pandemic, trying to undermine trust in Western vaccines, for example, um, and cracking down on its own Uyghur population, um, you know, the arrest of, you know, a Uyghur Canadian. Um, so, you know, suddenly now over the last two, two and a half years, we have really seen China assert itself on the world stage in a way that we hadn't before. There's been five episodes out so far. You've got a sixth episode coming out this weekend. Um, I, I, and But the thing that I find interesting is that this series, this season uh, started not with the pandemic, which at that point we were a year in. Why was COVID-19 not kind of your jumping off point for this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we actually originally planned to make COVID-19 the jumping off point, and we did. Uh, we do cover it in episode three, which is focused on, you know, it's called Wuhan. It's focused on Wuhan is sort of seen as the original epicenter of the pandemic, but also, you know, explores how Beijing really kind of capitalized on what has become the worst health crisis in modern history. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we decided instead to start with the issue of so-called hostage diplomacy. Um, you know, the arrest of the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spavor, of course, is, you know, constantly in the news, on the minds of a lot of Canadians, and has really become, I think, probably the central sticking point in relations geopolitically between Canada and China, of course, mm -hmm. the US wrapped in there as well. Um, so yeah, we decided to start with that because I think it was interesting to me, the, the two Michaels get a lot of attention, of course, but they aren't the only Canadians to have fallen, you know, have become the sort of geopolitical pawns in this broader chess match and gotten caught in the crossfire and become arrested in China. There were the Garretts, Julia and Kevin, who are from mm -hmm. BC. We kind of traveled all over China and we lived all over China. So we were well aware and we had tremendous friends and we, we worked with anybody who wanted to work with us, really. We met the Garretts in New Westminster, British Columbia at their local church. They're Christians who've devoted much of their lives to aid work in developing countries, China in particular. 
I grew up attending church in a small town just outside of Ottawa, and the Garretts seemed like the kind of couple who would greet you at the church entrance on Sunday mornings. Nice to meet you. Uh, there's also Hussein Chalil, a Uyghur Canadian who was, who's been arrested now and detained in China for 15 years without a single consular visit from a Canadian official. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of a bit of a debate as to what to start with. But we thought that given, you know, the attention that the Michaels received and the fact that, you know, the hostage diplomacy is so front of mind and yet perhaps, you know, lesser known cases that don't receive as much attention as the two Michaels do, but offer a lot of insights into, you know, exactly you know, how we might want to respond to China's so-called hostage diplomacy. One month after Su Bin's arrest in BC, Chinese state television broadcast news of criminal charges against the Garretts, which were practically a carbon copy of the U.S. allegations against Su Bin. China's foreign ministry says they are suspected of stealing intelligence related to the military targets and engaging in activities that endanger national security. It became clear that uh, they had been arrested in uh, retaliation uh, for the uh, arrest of Subin. Jeff, that first episode, uh, if that doesn't pull you into a podcast, I don't know what does. That uh, first episode's excellent. Um, you mentioned, like like you said, uh, you, you started this uh, when nobody was allowed to go into China. How difficult was, was putting the podcast together with not being able to visit the country? Yeah, it, it's it's really difficult and, and was definitely frustrating. I mean, you know, for to do a podcast on China without being able to travel to China is an obvious challenge. And unfortunately, the, the plan initially had been to go, um, but then the pandemic essentially thwarted those plans like so many others. Uh, and then we, you know, thought about waiting it out. And then it turned out that Beijing actually banned all travelers from, from Canada and other countries due to COVID-19. So we decided to proceed uh, without being able to go and we've done it in part by teaming up with a group of terrific brave uh, freelance journalists and, and camera people in China, in Wuhan, in Beijing, who have been conducting interviews for us. Then um, the other, you know, the real, realistically, I mean, there is also only so much that you can do on the ground in China these days as a working journalist. And we've talked to people, Western journalists who have worked there, some of whom have been kicked out of the country recently, um, because China is really cracked down, is accused of really cracking down on the freedom of the press, including Western journalists. And so we're doing a lot of these interviews, you know, from Canada, yes, and, and also relying on some of the previous reporting that I and others have done on the ground in China um, and, and sort of just getting trying to convince anyone to talk to you in China, you know, on in person or over the phone these days has been incredibly difficult. And so you will meet characters through our series who, you know, some of whom are very brave in speaking out publicly, some of whom have faced death threats as a result, and some of whom I've, have insisted on remaining anonymous because they have a story to tell, but they're, you know, simply too afraid to tell it publicly and putting their names to it. It was December 2019, and Bin Jang, his wife, and their two young children were planning a trip to China just in time for Chinese New Year. Bin is in his mid-30s and lives in Calgary, Alberta. He grew up in central China and says most Canadians had never heard of his hometown until last year. So you've been to China, you've you've met, uh, I assume, many uh, Chinese nationals, Chinese people in the country. Um, I, I'm wondering if, and, and through this series, you kind of speak to uh, a lot of what the Chinese government does. Um, I, I'm wondering if 
you or how in your mind you separate the people from the government of China. Yeah, and that's a hugely important distinction. And of course, and it's one that, you know, we've really stressed as, as often as possible through this series uh, that we are, you know, there is obviously a huge difference between the Chinese government and the Chinese people, Chinese Canadians who are, you know, an amazing part of our country. And often, you know, that distinction can be lost on people. I mean, we were wary of doing this series at a time where we are seeing a sharp rise in anti-Asian racism and, and racist attacks in Canada. Uh, and actually, one of our later episodes will be focused entirely on that and on the rise of anti-Asian racism, um, because you know this is the challenge. And it was a debate in our in our newsroom. I mean, you know, how to responsibly do a podcast about a government in China that is accused of you know a, a slew of human rights abuses, accused of carrying out a genocide on its Uyghur minority, um, you know, accused of of intimidating and threatening Chinese Canadians living in Canada. Um, and so how do we, you know, sort of focus on that while also making it absolutely clear that we are not talking about ordinary Chinese Canadians. Um, and that's, you know, that's a struggle. I mean, I think, unfortunately, there will be people who hear negative stories about China and, and you know, have a racist response to it. Um, but I think we have basically tried to account for that concern by you know, stressing as often as possible that distinction. And also, as I say, in this series, by focusing and hearing on the stories from ordinary Chinese Canadians who have been either targeted in their minds by the Chinese government or targeted by racist attacks from people who have basically turned the negative press about Beijing into fueling their own racist, awful behavior. I wanted to, to get into um, more the, kind of the government side of uh, things with the with uh, in China, um, specifically in your in your Wolf Warrior episode, you went into some of the, uh, albeit rare but available biographical detail of President Xi Jinping. Now she took power of the the PRC, People's Republic of China, in 2013. So it's been about eight years for world leaders to really get to understand uh, and and learn who she who President Xi is. I'm wondering, do you think that they have done that study, learn who, who she is and, and, and how to best handle, uh, as you earlier uh, mentioned, that, that so-called wolf warrior diplomacy? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good question because, um, you know, as you noted, I mean, he's, he's, you know, Xi Jinping has been in charge now for, you know, coming on a decade mm -hmm. and yet he remains, you know, this sort of mysterious figure. And I think the, you know, the lack of understanding, and this sort of is across the board, has become kind of a common theme and refrain that we have heard over and over again in interviews for this podcast is that Canadians, including, you know, Canada's leaders and, you know, Western leaders generally just have a poor understanding of China, Chinese culture, and, you know, the Chinese Communist Party. And that continues to be a problem, particularly as it pertains to questions around how Western countries should respond to this sort of new style of Chinese aggression, the Chinese government aggression that has been dubbed wolf warrior diplomacy. This is almost a tradition with Chinese leaders that you don't see biographies written about the leaders uh, while they are still in power. Um, I think this is one because uh, well, in the Chinese traditional culture, you don't write a book about a person who is still alive because his life has not ended. And um, another reason is, uh, well, for someone who is, who is still in power, if you want to write a biography, uh, it's very difficult to have the complete story. I think with Xi Jinping in particular, 
Um, there's also this factor of the narrative being closely guarded and being closely managed by a very complicated system of, um, of the message control or the propaganda department, if you will. But by combining the official version of events with other interviews and details, we can piece together an outline of C's early life, and it offers some insights into the man who would become president. So in episode three, Wolf Warrior, that is one of the questions that we really tried to explore as to, you know, how how should Canada and its allies respond to this bold and brazen Beijing? Uh, there are growing calls for Canada, for example, to take a tougher stance uh, for, you know, the Trudeau government will often at times talk tough, but it has seemed reluctant to take any real action against China. Um, so some China watchers would like to see Canada taking a tougher approach, but others will point to Australia as a case study where, you know, an example of what can happen when a mid-sized country decides to go it alone and stand up to China. And Australia has become Beijing's favorite political punching bag. They have been targeted with a slew of economic sanctions. They have had their journalists kicked out of the country uh, and on and on and on. Um, the, dis the distinction there is that Australia's government relies heavily on China as a trading partner, whereas Canada does not, not nearly to the same degree. Um, but that is sort of, you know, there are a number of case studies in terms of, you know, how we should respond. And, and you know, and I think to your original point there, it starts with, you know, kind of growing our understanding of China, of the Chinese Communist Party, of Xi Jinping himself. It's fascinating to see uh, that sort of Western countries trying to unite uh, in the face of especially China's Belt and Road Initiative, where they're able to gather uh, or to curry uh, economic favor uh, from, you know, a number of, of, of impoverished countries or, or, or less, less developed countries. Uh, it's, it's certainly setting up to be quite a big, uh, quite a big battle. Yeah. And, and to that point, Adam, it, like the China kind of sets up governments or, or governments that aren't theirs that what options do they have? Right. Like, and I guess that's the question for you, Jeff, is what options do governments have when they have to deal with China? If they're taking such a hard line, uh, the vaccines is a great example. You know, we're just going to send them to other countries if you're critical of us. So what options do governments have? when let's say people are are taken hostage or they're dealing with a, a hard line from the Chinese government? Yeah, and I, I think that's that remains an open question, right? I mean, in terms of how, how do you respond? What are your options? That is probably why we're seeing countries, you know, led by the United States who are saying, look, like there is an argument that China's wolf warrior diplomacy might backfire here because what they have done by sort of throwing their you know impressive weight around on the world stage in this in the way they have in recent years is that they have basically really soured political opinion when it comes to the Chinese government in Western countries. We have seen in political or public opinion polls in Canada, the United States, all over the Western world where the vast majority of people, vast majority of Canadians now have an unfavorable view of the government in Beijing. And that, that empowers our political leaders in turn to take a tougher response and a tougher tone with China. Um, you know, if a country like Australia goes, goes it alone, it's easy for China to use its economic weight against a country like Australia. But if Australia teams up with Canada and the European Union and the United States, it becomes a much tougher situation for Russia to face. Um, so I think that remains you know, one of the more popular 
arguments in terms of how to respond to all of this. Um, you know, if it, what is a, what does a small country or a mid-sized country do to stand up to China? Well, they look to their allies and try and create more of a united response. So, uh, Jeff, when you started this this China Rising project, and as you've been writing it and 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 releasing it now, what are your hopes that your listeners will will take away uh, after listening to the podcast? What do, what do you hope that they learn? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's, you know, we're we're aiming for about ten episodes through this series. Each episode covers a, you know, completely different topic. Although, of course, there are a lot of intersections. Um, but I, I just hope that. You know, I think that the, the biggest takeaway would really just be a greater understanding of Beijing. I mean, I think the Wolf Warrior episode was an important one, at least for me, because first of all, it, it, it allowed us to look in depth at the current president of China, who, you know, unlike, say, Vladimir Putin, who many Canadians know and, and probably know his story, Xi Jinping is, is a mystery. And, you know, I think China largely remains a mystery to a lot of Canadians who, you know, of course, not the Chinese Canadians, but others um, who, you know, for whom the culture, the politics, the thinking can just, it might seem very, very unfamiliar, very, un, you know, very strange. And I think, you know, that's a problem because China is a hugely important country politically, economically. In the late 1990s, a joint RCMP-CSIS intelligence report called Project Sidewinder concluded that the Chinese government and Asian criminal gangs were in fact working together in drug smuggling, nuclear espionage, and other criminal activities that threatened Canadian security. But at the time, that report was quietly shelved until it was eventually leaked to the Globe and Mail newspaper in 2000 sparking allegations that Ottawa tried to bury the report so as not to antagonize China. At the time, the Liberal government was trying to encourage more trade deals between the two countries. Some academic and media reports have claimed that Beijing occasionally employs triad bosses to work towards shared goals and crack down on dissent in foreign countries while others condemn those claims as nothing more than unsubstantiated conspiracy theory. Uh, and I think, you know, there is an, there's a real debate growing now of whether we should be, you know, continuing to try to, to see China as a partner, whether we should see Beijing as more of an adversary. But, you know, it's not a, a greatly informed debate, in my opinion. Um, I, think, I don't think people have a great understanding of China generally and i think you know we're hoping to try and correct that here and i mean i think even as a journalist it's been an absolute pleasure to delve into these issues and i've learned so much through the reporting on this that i didn't know before and it has helped you know grow my understanding of of, of china and, and chinese politics and the communist party and president xi jinping and i hope it helps other people as well this is why it's produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon.